1: I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks very much for joining us. I just got off the Skype phone with Michael Nyland and Greet Van Kierbergen to talk about their really wonderful and really, really important new edited volume, Chang'an 26 BCE An Augustan Age in China. This came out in 2015 with the University of Washington Press, and it's full of really wonderful uh, pieces, essays on various aspects of Western Han Chang'an that include, if you look at the three parts of the book, the built environment and the archaeology of the city, the socio political transformations in late Western Han, and some leading figures in the late Western Han. Now, this is really a model as a volume of bringing together in every single aspect of the work archaeological and textual sources, not just in ways that um, make the point that it's important to do so, but that really model and show us the possibilities for re envisioning what it can look like to work with and write stories with texts when we do so. The volume is a really important contribution, not just to how we understand and how we work with and envision early China. It's also a really wonderful resource for anybody working on researching, but also teaching urban history, um, the history of built environments, the history of empire, um, and much, much, much else. There are essays here on medicine. There essays here on lots of different um, aspects of uh, Western Han Chang'an. So it's a really important volume. I highly, highly recommend it. It's also illustrated with beautiful, some color um, images that are an integral part of the parts of the volume that they show up in. And so it's a volume that's really a pleasure, but also really informative and instructive to work with, um, as well as a volume that's got lots and lots of really important content. So I hope you enjoy. It was a pleasure to talk with both of them. And I actually learned a lot um, about the project um, and about their particular visions for the future of early Chinese studies. So I hope you enjoy. I hope you have a chance to get your hands on the volume. This is going to be something that will be on your bookshelf and will be used for many, many, many years to come. It's, I think, really a landmark um, in the field. So um, enjoy, and I hope you have a chance to take a look at it. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Michael Nyland and Greet Van Kierbergen about their really wonderful new edited volume, Chang'an 26 BCE. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Greet and Michael, and thanks for coordinating the group call and also for making time to speak with me today. I'm really looking forward to it.
0: Thank you for having us.
1: So let's start off as is traditional for the channel by saying a little bit about what brought you each to the field. So how did you come to work on early China specifically? And Michael, perhaps we can start with you.
0: Um, When I uh, began to be interested in China, it was in modern China, um, and there was actually no one in America working on early China, with the exception of David Keatley, doing oracle bones in the Shang Dynasty, which was not what I wanted to do. Um, So by very circuitous paths, I ended up at Cambridge, um, and I studied there with Michael Loewy. and then when I my money ran out and I had to figure out what to do next, again, no place in America. Um, so um, I first went to Harvard where I had hoped to work with Yang Lian Chung, but as predicted, he was not in good mental shape at that time. Um, and then I eventually transferred to Princeton where uh, they had failed to read my application, which said, don't accept me if you're not interested in doing it. In having me do early China. Nonetheless, I soldiered through Princeton and uh, eventually got my PhD there um, in a year when there were two jobs for all of China. um, And I was a woman. Um, I was the first woman at Princeton in the history department. Um, I'm in East Asian uh, studying history. So um, chances, I mean, it's really an amazing uh, fluke that uh, I got a job. But I'll tell you what directed me to early China was the prose in Sima Qian Shiji*, um and the objects that were beginning to come out of China, um, including things like the Ma Wang Dui Silk Banner, um, beautiful paintings um, on silk. So, um, I was driven by aesthetics for literary and artistic objects, and I've happily stayed here ever since.
1: So Greed, what brought you to the study of early China? Um, well, my
2: I started out with a really academic um, interest. So it, it's a completely academic route in the sense that I studied, um, I'm from Belgium, and I studied at the uh, University of Leuven, of, uh, the Catholic University of Leuven, and was studying philosophy. Um, and it was all Western philosophy all throughout, and I was a little bit dissatisfied with, you know, what I was learning and there was then one course where a professor was talking about Confucius and Mencius and that got me interested in China, and just at that time they were starting up a new program, um, you know, to teach modern Chinese with the tones and in a much better way than they had do- been doing it before. So I thought this is my chance. Um, so I started studying the language and st- and started studying the um, the history. And I'm kind of I think the reason why I ended up in early China is because of the kind of the text that I was interested in at the early point in time are from that time period, even though now I'm, you know, no longer a a, a student of these. I mean, I I use them, but I'm starting to use them in a very different way than I would have approached them while I was a philosophy student. Um, But then, so for graduate school, I went um, to the U.S., to Princeton, um, like Michael, even though I was um, studying there after after Michael and you know I stayed with early China um, kind of moving in between text and history and trying to make the text part of history um, throughout.
1: Mm-hmm. So great can you tell us a little bit about and tell listeners perhaps a little bit about what kinds of texts you focus on when you're not editing a massive incredibly important volume on Chang'an right well, how does this particular volume fit for you into the kind of research trajectory that brought you here?
2: um well, my f- first book my kind of the so called dissertation book is about the Huainanzi which is a text from you know written during emperor Wu's reign and it it's, it was a bit of a strange story because as as I started to write um that dissertation that then became a book I really was it first at first interested in the ideas. But then the more I was doing it, the more I couldn't, you know, I, I felt I had to read G and all the other sources available to understand why the text was saying what it was saying. Okay. Um, so that's how I moved really from the Huainanzi, which is a, you know, I'm not sure whether it needs to be called a philosophical text, but moved from there uh, then to like kind of the more historical text and trying to understand, I guess, any text, whether it's a part of a speech in in Sheji or Hanshu, or um, you know, um, you know, another text that we find in a tomb or a transmitted text as a as a, as a rhetorical piece that is um, um, that is there to say something um, to someone about something, and so that kind of our job is to try to figure out um, kind of what what that rhetorical setup is of of any text. <laughs> Um, including kind of the many texts that we that we used as we were um, kind of creating the volume that we're discussing today.
1: Thank you. And Michael, what brought you to a particular interest in this kind of uh, urban history approach to Chang'an specifically within the larger trajectory that you had been working on um, as you came to this volume?
0: Well, um I have tried with every single project I've worked on to actually work on a completely different sort of a project. Um, And this project came out of the fact that I was trying to think. I have quite a lot of graduate students um, working at very different levels of expertise. Some of them are in an MA program first year. Some of them are quite advanced. Uh, They read classical Chinese nearly as uh, well as uh, people who've been in the field uh, much, much longer. Longer. So um, what I decided to do was pick a topic that all of them, regardless of their particular level of Chinese and also regardless of their particular research interests, uh, could engage in. And I thought, oh, well, maybe doing something on an early city, those who are interested in archaeology, those who were interested in um, uh, historical events, parsing them, those who are interested in cross-cultural history, um, all of these things could be working for them. So I went to our very fine East Asian Library at UC Berkeley, um, and first of all, before going there, I did a search at UC Berkeley for um, how many books are on Rome, Um, and it was literally, I can't remember the figures, but it was five or 6,000 books devoted in Western languages um, to the city of Rome, um, and I went to look what had been done on Chang'an, um, and aside, there was nothing literally nothing. There have been a few books that took a chapter on Chang'an um, uh, but it's always Tang Chang'an um, and so it immediately became apparent that we have a stunning lacuna um, and, and so uh, I thought well God, you know, no matter what happens, uh, we need to plug this hole so that was the genesis of the project trying to think what would benefit my students working at different levels, uh, but it had never occurred to me um, that it would benefit the whole field if we were doing this.
1: Excellent. Um, Thank you so much. So the book itself that we're talking about collects 19 essays, plus an introduction and an afterword, and some really beautiful plates, some amazing images, and we'll talk um, a little bit about all of these things, that are all devoted to exploring Western Han Chang'an. And you've talked a little bit about the genesis of the volume in the acknowledgments you mentioned as well, a kind of initial conference at Berkeley in 2011, um, Chang'an, 26 BCE, From Drains to Dreams, um, that kind of spurred um, the creation of the volume. Now, the volume does a really remarkable job, really, really, really remarkable, and I want to emphasize this for listeners because it's extraordinarily important in bringing together the work of Chinese and U.S. scholars. So let's talk a little bit about that. Can you talk about the particular challenges, um, the particular opportunities as well, that this created for you both as editors of the project and create, um, perhaps we can start with you. Um, and can you speak to this a little bit?
2: Um, yeah. So both at the conference and then, you know, afterwards we had a number of scholars from China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and then a number of scholars from North America. <laughs> um, and then it, um, you know, we, we got, like a few months later, we got uh, all these SS in our in our inboxes, um, and it was a real challenge um, to try to kind of. Translate, but translate seems to be underestimating the task. Uh, you know, all those um, all those essays. Um, in that the, and then we all know that, that the kind of the scholarly approaches in in let's say in East Asia are still very different from the way we approach um, things here, and so it ended up being an extremely uh, prolonged. Uh, process of questioning our authors about very very specific things and it was a real learning process so i mean i would say that many of the essays um, um, and kind of most specifically the the ones from uh, scholars in the chinese world um, the way they ended up are not exactly the way they were in the beginning and we really uh, kind of, it was an, an almost endless exchange um, um, of questions, answers, new um, kind of uh, every question generating uh, new questions, um, etc. So it was it was a very interesting uh, process to um, you know to try to um, make these essays um, um, appealing um, to audiences um, in kind of in in North America.
0: Uh, let me, yeah. Let me add something. Um, I think I would agree with everything that uh, Greet has said, of course. Um, but our task was twofold, and I think we were very intent upon this twofold task. Uh, one was to make these authors um, aware of the sorts of questions that uh, readers in Europe and America would be asking them, um, and so to flesh out their essays um, in concert and continual collaboration with them. Um, I think that was uh, very much part of our task. Um, And at the same time, so we wanted their essays to look like scholarly essays uh, fully fleshed out in Euro-America. And at the same time, we wanted each and every one of the essays, no matter how technical, and we have some very technical essays, to be complete Completely open um, for undergraduate or non-specialist teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, of course, uh, uh, ratcheted up uh, the level of difficulty um, so that at times, um, I think uh, Greta and I wondered how we ever got ourselves into this. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, nonetheless, I think... Um, uh, we maintain that goal because uh, people who are non-specialists in China, people who are experts in Greece and Rome are continually asking us, uh, what can we read? Um, and we go, I'm sorry, it's all in Chinese, or I'm sorry, we're, we're working on that, but it's not published. Um, so we wanted a pretty comprehensive view um, of a major urban site in early China uh, from every angle that could be thought of, um, uh, so that we could direct readers to this sort of a volume.
1: I mean, that's hard to do even with um, collected volumes of essays where everybody's a native English speaker, right? Sort of having that level of accessibility to a more general readership. And I think you've really succeeded here. So for, because the... um, this collaboration between U.S. and China scholars is fairly rare, right? In terms of the um, how yes. central it is here. What are there for other scholars, other editors, and authors who might also be interested in having more collaborative, uh, polyvocal kinds of volumes like this? Are there any particular? experiences that you had in putting this together that you feel were especially um, important for the success that you've had that you'd want to pass on as advice, perhaps to other scholars and editors who might also be interested in bringing together these voices in a more concerted way. And perhaps Michael, if you could start us off. Um, I
0: think for me the most important thing was um, establishing um, perfect goodwill and amity with our Chinese authors because we were endlessly asking them uh, to rethink things, to add information, uh, which of course then we would duly translate, um, uh, pushing them in ways that uh, they confess never to have been pushed before. Um, And so had there not Uh, I was very conscious when I was thinking of um, uh, how to uh, arrange the conference participants of asking scholars um, who really um, are focused on the work and always improving their work and and never on their egos. Um, And um, uh, luckily, because we were working on a Chinese topic, we had... Um, I won't say multiple authors we could go to. there. There, for example, Liu Zhang in Taiwan. He, no one else could have done what he did. Um, uh, I would say that that's true for one or two other uh, scholars. Um, but the real question was, uh, did I feel that no matter how hard we pushed and how hard we changed things, um, uh, that uh, we would all assume that we were working towards a common good. And so it transpired. So that was great.
1: Creed, what about you? Were there any elements of this that you feel um, additionally contributed to the particular success that you had in managing this collaboration? Um...
2: Yeah, well, I'm, I mean, I was thinking in a, in a slightly different uh, direction. And of course, what, in everything, I endorse everything that Michael um, is saying. And she, I mean, she was a wonderful um, force in, in that whole, in that whole process, you know, of bringing people together and, and keeping everyone together. The, um, um, kind of what I'm thinking of is since we're working on a geographical area, um, and, you know, Archaeology as a discipline is so important, and then also historical geography, which is a discipline perhaps more in China um, um, than it is in in you know in North America. Um, so we we also needed the expertise um, of those scholars, maybe not kind of immediately those who excavated the sites, but those who knew about the sites, who could take us to the sites, etc. Um, so I think. Since geography and kind of the geographical dimension of our historical knowledge is becoming increasingly important, um, perhaps these kind of collaborations with scholars who know the terrain kind of much better than we do or will ever do um, becomes ever more necessary. And, you know, I think so. I think... I think it's the way we'll we'll have to keep doing things for the future too.
0: Let me just add one word: um, great. And uh, my own specialties and and research interests are are so. Um, of course, they converge in time, but are so different. Um, It was really great to have two entirely different takes on every single essay. Um, And when I would see what Greet was questioning, I would go, oh, Great. That's what an ordinary reader would be questioning, um, and, and and I'm sure it went vice versa. So um, I think that uh, uh, this also uh, it is uh, of course everything is ten times more labor intensive uh, when more people are involved. But um, in the end, I think that's what made the volume user friendly. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, the volume itself pays special attention to a number of aspects of um, the history of Chang'an, and one of the aspects that it pays attention to and and really calls attention to the importance of this in the introduction is Di, the figure of Di. Now, this is an emperor who, as we learn from the introduction, is often dismissed as being of no significance in nativist scholarship and is is often condemned as well. Now, that's not really the picture that we get here. So how does the picture of this major figure, um, the Chengdi uh, figure, differ importantly um, in the volume from previous um, depictions of Chengdi? And what about that is particularly important in terms of your goals for the volume? And perhaps, Michael, we can start with you. Um,
0: I thought it was... uh, I began working on Chengdi because of the library project. Um, uh, He was the first to build a major imperial library um, that uh, retrofitted many of the uh, previous works and reformatted them in brand new forms. Um, And I began to notice who was at Chengdi's court and go, well, uh, you know, what is going on that... Um, all of the most famous people from Western Han, with the exception of Sima Jin, uh they're all at Chengdi's court. And then I just began keeping an eye out for what was Chengdi's reputation, and his reputation is as a debauched emperor who was uh, never able uh, to sire a child um, or to say he sired them, but they died right away, and, and the assumption was that he may or may not, either biologically or uh, by acts of commission, may have actually even been complicit in their murders. Um, and then I looked how Wu Di was portrayed and and those of us who are Han historians uh, uh, at least in Europe and America think of Wu Di as a man of enormous promise, someone like Henry VIII who then proceeded to waste everything he had been given Um, and um, that he is famous in China uh, simply because he extended the borders of China the furthest that they've ever been extended and modern times Um, and um, uh, so we have this um, enigmatic figure Chung Di and then we have Han Wu Di who garners all of the kudos though Han Wu Di kills like Henry VIII almost everyone um, around him Um, and Chung Di's manner of governance is much more hesitant, much more consultative, much more um, interesting from a modern point of view. So, um, when I invited people to the conference, um, I said to them, I don't care what you write, you can take any topic you want, I simply want you to focus on Chengdi. And I have to say, all the people in China said, you're crazy. Um, <laughs> but we know you, I knew all of the people, um, most of them well, some of them at least uh, we had corresponded. Um, and I said, no, that's." Your task. I don't care what you find. I simply want you to work on this topic. I think we'll come out with something interesting. Um, and so that's the way a historian should approach topics. We don't care how it comes out. We simply are posing a series of interesting questions about a period that is way too understudied and a relatively enigmatic figure. Um, and I think that's why it proved to be so much fun for many of us who worked on this period.
1: Now, Greet, you actually have a contribution to the volume, which is an essay that looks closely at Di's relationships with um, kings with high-ranking princes, right? So could mm-hmm. you maybe um, in terms of contributing to this larger conversation of Chengdi and how the volume re-envisions and repositions Chengdi, could you tell us a little bit about what you take to be the most important aspects of what you're arguing in that chapter and why this is so important for you as a scholar?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um yeah, let, let me first say
2: sure. perhaps one more thing about uh, the Um I'm, I mean, I, I I mean, I agree with uh, what Michael is saying. And usually, when we talk about the Han dynasty, we think of Wu and you know, then we don't make much differentiation about what happened afterwards um however at the same time it's not about or to me as it's not so much about the figures of wu ti or changti and kind of the way they were um, as, as as persons um but we're also and i think that's one of the achievements of the book and there are certain essays that that go a lot deeper in that than others in trying to um Kind of not only highlight the figure of the emperor, but everyone um, that uh, is working behind behind the scenes and on the scenes and and with them. So um, all the different uh, power groups. I'm thinking in particular of uh, in particular of uh, uh, Luke Heberstadt's uh, um, essay, mm-hmm. which reveals that very very well. Kind of all those um, disputes um, at the court and kind of really changes our view as as um, as to how we should look at. Uh, power so it's not just uh, the figure of uh, Changti or um, kind of for the earlier period the figure of Wu and kind of the the general argument that we want to make um, is that this is a, a period where important uh, changes are taking place and not one person is responsible for all those uh, for all those changes um, and that the period as a whole kind of late western hum is generally um, kind of Um, We tend to underestimate its importance, and we really wanted to highlight how important – that this is an important um, uh, period of transition.
0: Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just going to add a sentence, not only an important period of transition, but many of the achievements that are assumed to be Han Wudi's exactly. actually only take place in late exactly. Western Han yeah. and at Chengdi's time. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, those of us who are not historians often assume, well, an emperor has power and he knows what to do with it. Um, it's really only Chengdi's court that figures out we have an empire and we can do things with it that have never been done before. So um, it's a little bit like Augustine, um, Augustus, sorry, versus Hadrian. Hadrian uh, really um, uh, has many more initiatives that are fully imperial. Um, Augustus is just starting that.
1: So great. Um, You were talking maybe a little bit about
2: your particular yes uh-huh. mm-hmm. yes so I'm, i mean I think I really worked within that uh, general framework um, of looking in detail at what was happening um, during chunk Rin, and then trying to situate it um, you know against the wider um, kind of narrative or um, new narrative about about Western Han history um, and kind of the the Zhuhu Wang or the you know who were relatives um of the emperor and who had important kingdoms um throughout western han and also in eastern han it's a group that's very often overlooked um and i've been doing kind of work on them um in the past kind of in in um, for different uh different types of publications so i'm it's not because i work on them but i think it's a it's it's a group whose importance is often estimated um Especially um, for the late Western Han period, where we think you know it's just the remnants, um, the remnants of these important kingdoms that were in place, uh, that were installed by uh, by Kaozu at the beginning of the Han dynasty. So what I was trying to to do with a very detailed um, analysis is to show um, how they still were important, but important in a very different way um, than they were in the very beginning of the Han Dynasty. Um, and kind of one of the arguments that I try to make is that um, because, um, you know, the the Western Zhou more or less already had that institution of, um, you know, giving um, trusted people Um, relatives or um, kind of trusted generals and people like that, uh, um, giving them land and giving them titles. Um, And I mean, we kind of the end of Western Han is really, um, you know, a a moment where they want to go back to the Western Zhou and to those institutions. So um, in a sense, it was important for them, um, even though those kingdoms were no longer Powerful in terms of, um, you know, they, they didn't have much choice in, in the way they were running their kingdoms. At the same time, I think they're still, um, you know, a very important presence in the, in the political um, landscape of the time. And what I, if I may add one thing is um, what I also, I mean, this is about Han history, but it's also about Chang'an because, and, you know, Tang Xiaofeng's essay really makes a, you know, points it out very beautifully. The uh, Western Han Chang'an was not the same, um, the same city um, throughout um, its 200, throughout the roughly 200 years, there was the Western Ham capital, and it changed um, enormously. What I also am trying to show with, um, you know, with my essay is that um, the role that Chang'an played in the imagination or in the lives of um, those kings who, you know, who had their kingdoms far away from from the capital changed enormously. So in the beginning, um, you know, when you read sources of of the earlier Western Han period, the kings they they want they want to be as far away as possible from the capital. Um, for the later period, um, you know the capital really has become the heart and the soul of um, I don't know how to call it uh, the empire, um, and somehow they want to they want to maintain and they want to um, um, kind of um, strengthen their connections with the capital, and that's that's why I chose the title pining for the west i mean kind of um, um kind of they, they start to uh, really long for the capital and don't necessarily like being sent to their kingdoms anymore so the the capital becomes truly a capital um during late western Han.
1: as a um, late imperial or early modern china um Scholar, the immediate thing that I thought of when I read that piece was, oh, this is really interesting in terms of the increasing attention that you know people like Craig Clunas, for example. That's what I was to, thinking right, of. of. Kings, right? It, his right, book, his yeah. Ming book um, on
0: on the local kings.
1: That's right. But then you remind us um, late in the book of the importance of understanding and being attentive to the differences, right, between late imperial contexts and um, the importance of not reading late imperial historiographical tendencies into the way we understand early China. And so, um, but I think this is really useful because it both gives us an opportunity to think across um, what might be divides, but also reminds us that that thinking across needs to be done very circumspectly mm-hmm. and very carefully and without assuming that we're talking about the same sorts of things, even when there seem to be resonances that make for productive conversation. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So another really interesting uh, part of the volume is its emphasis on and and it's asking of readers to pay attention to the importance of the built environment of Changdi's capital. And there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening here in terms of um, sort of attentiveness to the architecture to the, um, the ways that we might read decorative sources as texts, or decorative surfaces rather, as texts, um, and sort of a, there's a, attention to parkland and gardens, etc. Now one of the important factors that allows the existence of gardens and parkland and ponds and features like this, of course, is water. In the city. And Michael, your contribution to the volume talks a lot about and brings us into the importance of provisioning the capital, both with water but also with food. So, could you maybe take us into what you take to be some of the most important aspects of what you're arguing um, in your contribution to the volume in terms of the essay on
0: provisions? (laughs) Yes, well, um, I decided that I, as editor, would take a, any topic that no one else uh, ended up taking at the conference, um, and it became so clear to me immediately that we needed to talk about provisioning the city, and provisioning the city in ancient times um, must be done by water. It's just too expensive to do it any other way. So, I really knew nothing about the topic. I uh, of water and food provisioning Um, and so this was a great exploration for me and I had a wonderful model Um, there's a book called Ancient Rome by Colson and Dodge that has wonderful essays about um, um, transportation uh, um, and uh, provisioning the city in it and so that helped me figure out well what are the questions I should at least be asking I also was fortunate enough, there's really growing interest among archaeologists in China um, to reconstruct part of the water systems, uh, the great water systems, especially around um, capitals. And so, um, I was able to avail myself of brand new, literally, as I was writing, things were coming out, um, essays and and a book um, on um, basically Chang'an water systems um, um, because everything is so new there were many aspects of it that literally people hadn't pie- pieced together um, even in this marvelous book um, uh, that I'm thinking of in Chinese on on um, uh, the water resources around Han Chang'an. Um, in other words they were Trying to do pieces and pieces, which is uh, how we get bits of information, bits from archaeology, bits from the uh, official histories. Um, And uh, at points, uh, work is so preliminary, the real job was to put this kind of thing together. Um and and what I found very, very exciting was uh being able to work closely with map makers um that would help me envision how things were changing from one point to another. Um and so I really owe great thanks to Bill Nelson, for example, and as well as the Xi'an archaeologist and historical geographers. But it was very exciting. And then Rafe De Crepini, A student of Hans Bielenstein uh, was kind enough, he's been working on Loyang to act as a a second reader for everything I was working on, as well as Brian Lander, a a brand new PhD who was working in the archaeology of the area. So this became, you know, everyone kind of pulling together, oh, I found this piece of information, oh, I found this, Um, and in the end... um, I think we really know more about um, provisioning uh, the city with water, fresh water, unpolluted water, um, and with food uh, than we ever knew before. And as Chang'an mausoleum towns start growing their ever greater population, eventually we have far more people in the area than were at Rome, um, and therefore far greater problems in how do we feed these people and how do we make sure their water is untainted
1: thank you so much now we've talked about different kinds of linkages and so this linkage through water is one example we've talked a little bit about linkages and the kinds of challenges of making linkages across time right between Um, late imperial and early contexts. We've also talked very briefly, um, I think Greet was mentioning the importance of linking textual with archaeological sources, and this really happens throughout the volume, and we can talk a little bit more about that later if you'd like. But there's also another very important linkage that's been underlying a lot of our conversation, but that's very, very important throughout the volume, and that's the importance of linking Chang'an to wider cross-cultural, cross-local kinds of questions. So um, this is, I think, because it's so important, let's devote some time to talking about this. Can you speak to, um, just to get us started, why this was so important um, to you as a major contribution to the volume? Why is it so important for us to think about Chang'an in the context of these wider cross-cultural kinds of questions and stories? And Greet, perhaps you can um, get us started on that. Well, I'm uh, I'm thinking of um,
2: all the walls that were in at first there were no walls around Chang'an but then in you know under Huéti's reign very early on in the 90s um, um walls were built around the city um and What I'm often struck by is that you cannot have a wall without having a gate in the wall. And if you have a gate, you have to have many people. I mean, you have kind of exchanges of people who come um, through the gate. Um, And so those so in a way I mean of course the walls are very important they, they tell us um, um, many things um, but I also think that you know we wanted to focus more on the gates as, as places of um, exchange um, so where people came um, sometimes you know you could have um, um, you know people from foreign places uh, merchants from all over China um, people who were trying to make their political fortunes in Chang'an students who came from everywhere so as um, Chinese Pang was growing in importance. It also became, um, you know, it, um, yeah, the kind of it became deep it became the place to be. So I really don't think that you can, um, you know, study a city um, merely as a static site, but you really have to kind of try to make it as dynamic as possible and to, you know, see all the exchanges that are constantly going on, and of course that we, you know, if you if you merely give a description of, you know, there was a a palace there, there were walls there, these are the dimensions, Um, you're not going to get at it. And, you know, what we've done in the volume, I think, is only a start. I think there is a lot more um, that can be done in in that respect. Um, Another perhaps important aspect is, um, you know, they. There were other major cities in the in the Western Han Empire, and somehow Chang'an also needed to profile itself against uh, those other cities. And you know, uh, if I'm thinking of Linze in in the state of Qin, in what is now Shantung, which was an enormously flourishing um, city and was perhaps more flourishing. Um, in early Western Han times than was Chang'an. So there is also this kind of inter-regional competition going on, which um, is very interesting to observe and, and follow.
1: Michael, did you want to speak to this?
0: Yes, I do. Um, I think that there's more and more interest among classicists of ancient Greece and, and Rome um, than uh, before in what was going on in comparable situations. Um, I, uh, my own teachers uh, include uh, and, uh, Nathan Sivan, um, who worked very closely with Jeffrey Lloyd, trying to sketch out what was ancient Paideia, um in early china versus uh athens um i think that uh, we are really hungry to understand how ancient empires um, uh, managed um, in times where there was uh, such poor transportation and communication um, to hold themselves together, partly because these ancient empires loom large in the consciousness um, of people, I think uh, many people uh, think they know about Rome um, simply because uh, they read about it in fifth grade um, in in America and and certainly in China, many people uh, would say, "Oh, I know all about Chang'an." Um, but uh, it's really the details that, when you get down to them, that it's it's very startling. That let's take Rome and early China that we have the empires of approximately the same size and the same population that are run on completely different bases, um, economically and politically, aside from the fact that eventually we get monarchs for both of them. The way the monarchies run is quite different. Um, And I think that um, what people need to realize is that – um in a sense, uh, we have choices and things are not run biologically <laughs> or um, in primary school, that doesn't have to be the only range of options that one can think about as we move forward in the future politically. Um, so.
1: Right, and in the volume, actually, um, you are very careful to articulate at least some of those really important differences, right? And among them, um, Chang'an did not rely on slave labor. Um, and this is, and with you know, Game of Thrones in the background and the memory of uh, lots of people watching Daenerys uh, Targaryen create her empire. Um, this issue of slave labor and empire and the growth of empire is actually probably really um, important culturally right now in our sphere. If we take TV as any indication, but this is just one. Um, and I'm being a little flip here, but not.
0: Um. No, not entirely, because uh, first of all, in Chinese, as you well know, there's no word to distinguish bondservant and slave. So even many uh, Chinese assume that there was a much larger slave population um, than in term bondservants, what we would call indentured servants. So there's misapprehension all the way around.
1: Right. And this is important, I think, to speak to broader um, perhaps more global historiographical concerns that are emerging across fields right now. I think in a lot of humanistic fields, there's an increasing attention toward labor. I mean, I think in a lot of us, um, for a lot of us who are working in academic environments where issues of labor and the politics of labor are becoming increasingly important and trenchant and really part of what we think about and argue about and are attentive to in our daily lives, that's coming up more and more as a concern in a lot of our um, humanistic field. And this is at least one of many ways that this particular early history can speak to um, and can help us articulate Ways to be more um, attentive to issues of labor um, and local uh, contexts of labor across empires. But this is just one of many ways, right, um, that Western Han, Chang'an, and Rome were actually quite different. Um, Can we? talk about maybe some of the other ways that you think are particularly important in terms of how we understand the connections and the relationships um, in this uh, broader imperial history. And Greet, perhaps if you can get us started, what are some of the most important um, ways that Western Han, Chang'an, and Rome were importantly different um, in terms of how we think about them?
2: Um, Hmm.
1: Well, there is um, definitely you know, if
2: um, even in, in merely physical terms, um, Rome was built kind of with a lot of stone and later on also marble. Um, and so a lot of it remains. And so when you go to Rome nowadays, you can still see lots of the remains of, uh, you know, the Forum Romanum and lots of other remains um, from the Republican period, from the Imperial period in Rome. Um, the case with Chang'an is completely different where, you know, we have only you know post holes and um you know sites underground that are you know after they've been ex- if they're excavated and afterwards um you know they're returned um kind of they put earth over them again so um and they put a few objects out in museum um so the the physicality of it all um is very is very very different um what I mean, I'm sure Michael will have lots uh, to add to this, but what I think is also um, very interesting is how, um, of course, Western Han Chang'an was the capital for 200 years, but then… And it, it continued to play an important role even after that. But then the capital was moved to Luoyang. So the idea um, – and so and also Western Han, Chang'an, um, kind of its location towards Xi'an is not where, is not exactly where the Qin capital was. It's not exactly where the Zhou capitals were, even though they were in the same area. It's not in the same place as the uh, Sui and Tang capital was. So kind of the idea – um that with an incoming or a changes in the dynasty you 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 go to a new place somehow and and even though the area is not new it's it's very interesting to me and something you know I'm trying to wrap my mind around um, even now,
1: <laughs> Michael, did you have anything to add here? And you talk a, um a little bit in the introduction in particular about the differences in terms of um power and its relationship to the military or not in these contexts and also the figure of the emperor in these contexts being quite different. Did you want to speak to that a little bit? Um, Sure, I'll speak to that briefly.
0: Um, One of the... ideas that I've become convinced of um, is that the logics of legitimacy in ancient Rome and ancient China were completely different. Um, What Rome offered its elites and commoners um, as a way uh, to get them to buy into uh, the Roman Empire uh, was really quite different. Um, Rome offered elites, uh, basically they, many of them stayed uh, more or less with their structures in unchanged on the local level, um, as long as they paid taxes to Rome. Um, that uh, the Chinese uh, conceived uh, what an empire should do uh, quite a bit differently. Um, they wanted uh, to uh, really assimilate uh, their populations to the degree that it was possible given the conditions of the time. And... I taught a course with my wonderful colleague, Carlos Narena, who's also contributor to the book. He's a Roman historian, and uh, we concluded that in some sense, the real Rome-China contrast that uh, we should be looking at is that Rome, at the height of its extent, had fewer than 1,000 officials to run the empire, all of them unpaid, all of them from the senatorial class, um, and that, in In Han Chang'an, we had a hundred, coming out from Han Chang'an, we had 130,000 paid Mm -hmm. upper-level administrators, each of whom we can imagine had between 10 and 20 people working on their staffs. So the level of aspiration for penetration, real penetration into the outlying regions um, is just on on a scale that it's quite, quite different. Um, therefore, aside from Wu Di, most of the expenses of running the Han Empire um, went typically to the uh, paying the administrators, uh, the vast bureaucracy that China really invented uh, the notion of bureaucracy.
1: And this is actually one of um, this acknowledgement of this deep administrative. Penetration um, is one among others of some of the major methodological contributions to the volume, right? And, and we're reminded of this um, both early and late. Um, in addition to this, and in addition to pointing us to the importance, again, of disaggregating our historiographical approaches to late imperial and to early contexts, um, there's a lot of attention to an analysis of the metaphysical topography, as you put it here, of the capital. Um, there's more attention here to conventions of the rhetoric of Han texts, um, rather than just simply reading the semantic content of text as if it's a uh, transparent window into you know unproblematic um, meaning. There's also um, an important move here that, that asks us to disambiguate the Western and the eastern Han right and to think about these um, in terms of difference as well. but you also point us here, um, to some important future directions that the field might take that this is perhaps a springboard for and a window into. One of those um, in, uh, important future directions might be, Michael, as I think you put it in one of your contributions here, an increased attention to the social glues, as you put it, that bind disparate regions and groups in the Western Han. And you um, you ask us to think about the possibility of um, the kind of physicality of ornamental roof tile ends and tower gates, right, as being possibly part of this social glue. Did you want to maybe, um, Michael, talk about that a little bit, and perhaps um, move from that into some of uh, talking about some of what you t- take to be other important possible future directions that this might um, open us up into. Well, um, as as
0: everyone here probably knows, uh, Roman historians argue that when uh, so many people were illiterate, the Roman Empire could never have stuck together um, were it not for all those Roman heads on coins and Roman statues of emperors in the fora. Um, but, of course, we don't have heads of emperors or anybody else on, on Chinese coins, nor do we have statues in the fora, um, but uh, we probably have only slightly more literate populations. so I began to ask uh, well, what is holding things together what What would make you feel you were part of an empire? Um, and of course, part of what you would make, make you feel you were an empire is this density of administrators, but you need visuals, uh, uh, if you uh, are illiterate, um, you may never get to see your local administrator. In fact, you hope you never see your local administrator because you're probably only seeing him if he was judging you, uh, for a crime. So, um, I began to say, what would you see every place around that would mark buildings. Um, And I think what would mark uh, these buildings would be impressive architecture in wood. Um, But more to the point, these roof tile ends, these ornamental, beautiful roof tile ends um, that sometimes have animals on them, sometimes have Chinese stylized characters um, that even people who could have basic uh, literacy would not be able to parse, but um, that are spectacularly beautiful and these would have ornamented every impressive roofline of every impressive governmental building, um, uh, all the way up from, let's say, the county administrator's uh, compound um, to uh, the palaces in Han Chang'an. So I am very interested in the visual. I was trained as an archaeologist in the Institute of Archaeology in China, um, and I'm always thinking about what could you see in sight lines and, and what is visual and what are people in their daily lives um, dealing with. Um, One of my next projects um, is about non-elites and what we can and cannot say about them. And I'm spurred by this uh, by two books, uh, one done by a Berkeley um, uh, professor and one done by someone at uh, the University of Texas at Austin. Um, One is about uh, visual materials and, and what you could and Could not see um, art in the lives of ordinary people in imperial Rome. Um, And the other one uh, from my wonderful colleague, Professor Knapp, um, is uh, parsing uh, well, uh, of course, we can't say much about non elites in the Roman Empire, but if we work a little bit harder, could we not say a little bit more? Um, And I think certainly for the Chang'an area, we could say quite a bit more. And I've been working with an archaeologist uh, in Chang'an who's interested in the lives of non-elites. Um, and I think that will be uh, one of the future directions that I try to go in myself.
1: Great. For you, what are some of the most important um, promising future directions of scholarship on this period um, that you see coming out of the contributions that the volumes making?
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, maybe rather than focus on a specific group such as elites or non-elites or, you know, and of course that all needs to be done, but I'm very interested in the idea of um, kind of movements and how people move throughout the empire and how Chang'an functions as people of all, you know, all backgrounds and ranks, and not everyone, of course, travels, but many of them uh, do, and perhaps more than than we would imagine. Um, why that happens, um, how that happens, and how all that movement ultimately um, contributes to the creation of something, you know, we might call uh, we might call an empire. Um, so that's something that interests me. We have kind of registration, uh, kind of it's not it's not it's not. Um, a given, you know, you don't just go to Chang'an and say, "No, my registration is in Chang'an." It's a very complicated uh, process to do it, and I'm I'm kind of trying. I'm always trying to be attentive to um, how this happens in what context, how people um, get to move either a single man or bring their families, um, what their relations are with their you know their hometowns, um, um, etc. Kind of these are all. Um, kind of important themes that remain important throughout uh, Chinese history, but I think the way things play out in late Western Han is still substantially different from how you know how things are done later on. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I think this actually really speaks to, in addition to pointing us to important differences, it also speaks to, I think, an emerging. Um, sense, again, across humanistic disciplines, but um, in particular among historians, of the importance of mobility,
2: mm-hmm. um, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're
1: getting more and more histories that um, uh, emphasize mobility and mobilities in empires and beyond, um, and this is a way, I think, to speak really nicely to that emerging trend as well. Mm-hmm. So in addition, there are, so there are lots of things that we can talk about, right, in other future directions that you... Mm Mention in the volume include um, to kind of speak to something that Michael mentioned at the very beginning when mentioning um, the uh, Imperial Library Project, right? Um, The volume is also turning us to um, look at the importance of libraries um, as opposed to just archives um, in terms of the creation of knowledge in these contexts, um, asking us to look at the differences between oral and written habits that just print and manuscript cultures um, and asking us to move behind looking at um, certain sections of standard histories right, which have often preoccupied historians to look at other more neglected aspects of standard histories that might open up new kinds of stories like think like you mentioned uh, tables and treatises and hereditary houses so there's lots of possibilities here um, that are opened up by the contributions to the volume and that might open up into other possibilities as well So there's a ton of stuff, right, uh, that we haven't talked about. (laughs) But as we come to the conclusion um, of our conversation, of course, you know, we can't possibly be comprehensive. And I I urge listeners to get a copy of the volume because, as you mentioned, it's really, really useful, not just for researchers, but also for those of us who teach. And who teach not just China courses, but also um, more kind of global historical courses um, that, you know, to that give us um, resources to do that and integrate Western Han Chang'an into those larger stories. Is there anything in particular, though, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, And perhaps, Greet, we can start with you. Um, You know, perhaps one thing.
2: um, I mean, you've emphasized a couple of times how, how, you know, we don't want to assume, um, you know, Things in in the Han were the same as they were in late imperial China. Um, I think very often when we think of a a Chinese capital specifically, we tend to think of the Forbidden City. And I just want to make the point that Han Chang'an is nothing like the Forbidden City, and it's fascinating kind of the ways in which it diverges from kind of a neat plan like it. And you know, I I think that's um, you know a, something I wanted to just posit and 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 make clear.
0: Uh, following up on that comment, I think that the really exciting thing about the volume for me boils down to two things. One, that we see people for the first time conceptualizing empire um, uh, as they're going about um, over the course of the, uh, their daily lives uh, at court and beyond. Um, they're really having to make things up as they go, and so many of the institutions that are being formed in Western Han, but specifically uh, in late Western Han, uh, then become the paradigms uh, for much of later Chinese history, and then they become the precedents. But what we can see in our texts is people really wrestling with how do we set this up properly um, so that we benefit parties, um, disparate parties, uh, in the empire. And I think, of course, that's an ongoing question in America. Um, How do we set up politics uh, so that uh, it can benefit disparate parties? So I I would like to emphasize that I think many of the questions, underlying structural questions that the volume raises um, are not only about early classical civilizations uh, 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 but um, are of enduring relevance uh, today. I guess the one other thing I'd really like to emphasize to people who don't know the volume volume, um, is how spectacularly uh, um, well-integrated color, uh, uh, photographs, um, uh, tables, uh, outlines of the city and aspects of the city, line drawings, um, all of these things, so that there's never a moment in the text where you're very far from an illuminating map or some other visual aid. Um, And that's, of course, quite conscious um, uh, from the editors. We really wanted people uh, to enter into this world visually as well as uh, through reading. So uh, I think those are very important um, aspects of the volume. Mm
1: -hmm. Absolutely. And thank you for emphasizing that because it's one of the things that makes the volume so useful. And the images, at least from the perspective of one reader, right, which is all I can really speak to, they're really integrated insofar as they're not simply illustrations, right? We're reading the images as well as reading the text, and I think that's a really nice way of asking us to engage with the volume in the way that you're modeling engagement with the kinds of sources of um, Western Han Chang'an history um, in the content of the pieces. So, Michael, you've said a little bit about um, what you're kind of interested in working on in the future, but what are you working on now? Um, What's next for you, and are there any projects that are currently really inspiring you now that the volume's out?
0: Well, aside from the non-elite project, um, um, which will take a long time to complete, um, I am working on two projects. One is, uh, I've been working for 15 years on a book call, uh, which uh, will be about pleasure theories in early China, contrasting them with pleasure theories uh, in ancient Greece, um, and um that's incredibly important to me because I think uh, very few people that I've talked to have thought about these issues in relation. Our view of the distant past in China has often been Christianized, um, and uh, it's not surprising we read much of it through missionaries. Um, and uh, I really want to speak to part of the logics of legitimacy is, is how people get pleasure um, and how government instil- uh, institutions provide them opportunities for pleasure taking and pleasure giving um, but how those also exist on much smaller levels so um, that I'm working on this book and I'm actually nearly finished with it to my great surprise. Some people have said I didn't want to finish it because it was too pleasurable to work on <laughs> but um, I've decided it needs to be finished after 15 years and I'm wrapping it up. It should be done by Christmas. And then I've begun um, a really difficult uh, fully collaborative work with a European scholar and with a Chinese scholar on translating the most difficult classic um, the documents. Um, And we're translating it not according to uh, a modern assumption that there should be an or text. We don't believe there was ever um, Uh, an original text for this. We believe there were many circulating manuscripts. Um, We're translating it uh, by Han Dynasty commentaries and creating a text that reflects Han and pre-Han views um, of this document's classic. Um, So, uh, it's a major undertaking, and it's incredibly rigorous, and thank God we've got a German on the team um, uh, reminding us of all the methodological pitfalls. Um, Anyway, this is, uh, I think, uh, really, um, I was doing it as an act of filial piety to a teacher of mine, Paul Sorois, but it has become uh, a fully pleasurable endeavor on its own.
1: Um. Wonderful. So, Greet, what are you currently working on, and what's next for you? Um,
2: well, it's um, you know I have several. I seem to be having several little uh, projects, but then you know some some larger ones as well. Um, in terms of um, uh, translation. It's I'm not I mean, I'm not working on the documents itself, but on a, an early Western Han commentary on the documents, which um, the Shangshu Da Chuan, the great commentary on the Shangshu, which, which was extremely um, influential in um, you know up uh, throughout Eastern Han and, and slightly beyond. So we're I've done a translation with um, Lin Fan and we're also finishing it up. It's a very complex textual history, and then you know kind of, we're also trying to write an introduction that kind of Tells the readers where exactly this this text um, fits in the times. Um, then I also have, um, you know, lots of. I mean, I, I mean, I feel the the project, the book project that we've uh, on Chang'an um, in late Western Han, um, has opened up so many perspectives that I still would like to pursue. Um, even though, you know, they, so they seem like. Mm, they're a little bit more than loose ends but um, um, kind of I'm fascinated by the reasons why for example uh, the decision was made and kind of people were arguing for that already in Western Ham um, to move the capital um, to Luoyang um, and I'm also very interested in how um, kind of how and why um, later texts um, such as the Samfu Huangtu which is an important source for us is remembering um, kind of the Western Han, the Qin and the Western Ham uh, capital region. So I'm trying to um, um, kind of work on projects um, in that in that um, in that direction. And then the other thing um, um, is the nobles, so the the kings, but also um, kind of the ho, the lie ho, uh, We're finding so much more archeolog- archaeological material about them that I think it's time to try to reevaluate um, what their role was in kind of in the hum and kind of how this role was uh, changing over time so that that i see as my next big project but um, um i'm very very far from completing that so well, still a lot of work to do
1: well thank you to both of you um this all sound great and thanks mm-hmm. so much for making time to talk with me it's an extraordinarily um accomplished volume it's a really important volume and i'm really grateful to the both of you for making time to talk about it it's really been a pleasure we are
0: grateful for such a good reader and interviewer. May yes, they all, yes. uh-huh. all of our readers, be like <laughs> <Yes>. you. <laughs> <thank> you. <laughs>
2: yeah, and so. it's really nice how you bring out, you know, certain things from your own, uh, you know, from your own engagement with your field. Um, um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's really interesting to, to talk across fields that way. So thank you very much.
1: Thank a- you. <laughs> You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.